It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to this here podcast. If you are listening on the website, a lot of people go to the website, thepetecalendarshow.com, and they listen right there, which is fine. But if you click the subscribe button, then you get the podcast every day and you don't even have to worry about uh, remembering to go to the page. It just automatically comes to your smartphone or tablet. You're welcome. And it's free, of course. Um, you can also become a patron by going to thepetecalendarshow.com. Uh, folks like EZ and Daniel and Lisa, Janet, Loretta, David, Stephen, David, Curtis, Sherry, and Nick, they all became patrons of the show. And I am, uh, I'm really grateful for that kind of support. It's humbling. It's, I've been doing this now a year. And honestly, I said from the very beginning, um, when patrons signed up and I said, you know, this is all just kind of proof of concept. We're going to find out if I can do this and if it works. And, uh, you know, it may not. Uh, and here we are a year later, thanks to patrons um, that supported me and the show for the last year. So uh, and they get exclusive content like tonight. We're going to be doing our live stream. And uh, so that's fun. And hopefully we can roll out more of that uh, type of content uh, as uh, things progress. I am looking forward to doing some uh to doing some events for patrons as well. Uh, now that uh, King Roy, I'm sorry, Governor Cooper has lifted some <laughs> some more restrictions. So uh, I look forward to be de- to be able to do some of that, uh, uh, some of those types of events in the future. So uh, there's all of that. Also, I want to uh, also thank the sponsors of the program. Uh, the the newest sponsor we've got is Growers Hemp. These are North Carolina farmers that decided to grow hemp and then uh, take control of the process so they're not just raising the crops and then turning them over to somebody they're now the somebody that you would turn the crops over to so they manufacture the cbd products and what that affords them is the ability to control the entire process right from seed all the way to shelf which means quality control but also they can keep the prices low because they're vertically integrated and uh you get to help support north carolina farmers because these are north carolina farms family farms so uh go to growers hemp if you are interested in trying some cbd products they've got topicals they've got the drops i i take them before i go to bed so i can sleep through the night more deeply than i ever have before i don't wake up you know mind racing uh as I have basically my entire life, uh, thinking about the stuff I got to get done and the things that I, you know, I messed up on in the day. <laughs> so, uh, I just take a couple of these drops and by the way, you do not wake up feeling groggy or anything it, it, like there. Um, I, I never, I never took sleep aids, <clears throat> but, uh, people who have, they've taken the product, the grower's hemp product. And they say, it's not like that. You don't wake up with that kind of medicine head i guess that that feeling that you've taken some drugs some sleep aid um like carol sue she said that she was surprised uh at how quickly and gently the drops work uh she says she's a morning person and this did not interfere with her normal morning routine she did not feel drowsy it's nothing like taking a sleep aid so uh check out growershemp.com and if you use the promo code pete you'll get 20 percent off growershemp.com and Here's the disclaimer. I got to give it to you. 
GovCo says so. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research, and these products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Nothing I've said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider, so please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. All right, growershemp.com from North Carolina farmers to you, and uh, it's about the hemp. It's not about the hype. So this week, there was a Senate hearing in the North Carolina legislature. This was a uh, the Senate committee is the redistricting and elections committee. And they had appear before them the executive director of the Board of Elections, Karen Brinson Bell. And they are the senators are uh, they are looking into the uh, the the facts surrounding the settlement agreement that the Board of Elections entered into about two months before the election, less than two months before, while the early voting was already going on in North Carolina. Um, and uh, this was a settlement that was entered into uh, by the Board of Elections with the plaintiffs in the case, the plaintiffs being represented by Democrat lawyer Mark Elias. Mark Elias also represented Roy Cooper in his uh, uh, fight in 2016 when they were doing the the recounts and the vote was like really, really close where he beat the incumbent Governor Pat McCrory, the Republican, beat McCrory by like 0.1% of the votes or whatever. And it was like 10,000 votes. That was the, the total uh, difference. And so uh, Cooper hired Mark Elias. Mark Elias also was the lawyer for uh, Hillary Clinton. He works at Perkins Coie. He was the cutout between the uh, the the Steele dossier and the Democratic Party. And so Mark Elias is. Um, I, let's just say this: I'm not a fan of the guy. I find him to be shady. Okay. That being said, Mark Elias sued, representing some Democrat-aligned organizations, these special interest groups, and uh, they sued the Board of Elections and the General Assembly. And uh, so you got three parties to this case. All right. So that's sort of the background. The and this this emerged as an obvious strategy that Democrats were employing and have employed actually uh, in, in various ways called a sue and settle strategy, which is you file a bunch of litigation and then you have the agency, quote, settle with the plaintiffs and everybody can agree on what the settlement terms are. Because you all kind of agreed with them in the first place, because you're all of a like mind on these things. And this is a perfect example of it. This was a perfect example of the sue and settle strategy, because Karen Brinson Bell, the elections director, had sought the very things that the settlement agreement got for her. While they were, quote, fighting the lawsuit, they end up then settling for the things that they had initially asked the General Assembly to do that the General Assembly said no. So it's almost like you got the plaintiffs coming in and they're like, we hate both of you. We're against both of you. And then, oh, actually, we're not really against you. And you peel off one of the defendants and bring them over to your side to enact a settlement agreement at the expense of the third party, the other defendant. So I've got a bunch of audio from this hearing, and I would be surprised if this is the end of it. There are a lot of unanswered questions still, even though we had this hearing. So here's how uh, WRAL's Travis Fain and Matthew Burns uh, wrote it up. 
Senate Republicans told North Carolina Elections Director Karen Brinson-Bell that she shook public confidence in elections last year when her board settled a lawsuit and changed state absentee ballot rules six weeks before the November election. The settlement came in September in response to lawsuits filed by Mark Elias, the Democratic Party's go-to attorney on election issues. It sought changes to account for the pandemic and worries of a U.S. Postal Service slowdown. Is that it? Were those the only reasons? They were not the only reasons. Democrats filed hundreds of lawsuits in predominantly swing states. Why? Why would they target so many swing states with all of these different lawsuits? Is that just to account for the pandemic? Is that just because they were worried about the Postal Service slowdown? A slowdown which wasn't really a slowdown. This was blue and on. This is another example of how the... Uh, mainstream media, legacy media outlets, they just adopt Democrat conspiracy theories as the truth. Whereas they all, you know, I would argue, rightfully express skepticism and criticism of, you know, wild conspiracy theories like Q and QAnon. But when it comes to blue Anon conspiracy theories, they just swallow them. And that whole U.S. Postal Service slow down argument, that's where that came from. This was from August 14th, 2020. The U.S. Postal Service has warned state election officials of inconsistencies between its delivery service and state deadlines for receiving and counting mail-in ballots, raising the possibility that a lot of votes may not arrive in time to be counted. The warnings got delivered in letters that were sent to state election officials by the Postal Service's general counsel and executive vice president, Thomas Marshall. The letters advised election officials to be mindful of the potential inconsistencies between Postal Service's uh, delivery standards, which have been in place for a number of years and have not changed, and the provisions of state law. In other words, uh, that's a quote from Martha Johnson, spokesperson for the Postal Service. Uh, She said the purpose of the letters was to assist states in educating their voters on when to request their ballots and to return their completed ballots in accordance with the Postal Service's mailing standards. When, and by the way, if you want, you can go back and find the shows that I did a year ago back in, you know, August, September, and I interviewed members of Congress about this, this idea that, you know, the Postmaster General and Donald Trump, that they're that, that they're trying to, you know, slow down the post office and they're trying to make sure nobody's votes are counted. The Postal Service said, look, you got a lot of ballots, a lot of mail and like this idea that we deliver things within three days like that hasn't been true for a while. <laughs> So you might want to tell people, hey, vote earlier. Don't try to send the absentee ballot or the mail-in ballots, right? Don't try to send these things uh, on the day of because if they don't make it in time, it's not going to get counted. So you guys should really make a push to have people, if they're going to do the absentee balloting, that they need to do it much earlier, okay? But there's this belief that if if I vote absentee, I should be able to vote up until the day of the election day, right? That I should be able to vote for this entire period ahead of time and up to election day, and that everybody else needs to hang out and wait for my vote to finally make it through the mail service and arrive at the Board of Elections to be counted before anybody can say that the election is technically over, right? And there was accommodation made for overseas ballots, predominantly military ballots for absentee, this window, you know, get your ballot mailed. But what the Postal Service was saying at the time was to say, look, guys, you got to 
uh, tell your people that they need to vote early because there's a lot of people that are going to be looking to vote absentee because of the pandemic. And Democrats took this and turned it into Donald Trump is trying to stop everybody from voting because Donald Trump was an opponent of the all mail-in systems that some of these states were rushing through and using the pandemic as the excuse to implement brand new all mail-in no excuse voting. And a lot of people, myself included, were saying, this doesn't seem like the best way to implement a, uh, an election system, a voting system that's going to have integrity. You're opening the door for abuse because and for fraud. You are because you don't know what you're doing. You haven't done to this scale. Some states were just rolling all of this stuff out on the fly. And so the Postal Service was like, hey, heads up. You might want to tell people to mail their votes early. Uh, Johnson, the spokeswoman, said uh, the dramatic increase in election related mail due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic uh, and that the Postal Service is asking election officials and voters to realistically consider how the mail works and to be mindful of our delivery standards in order to provide voters ample time to cast their votes through the mail. The pandemic has raised concerns in recent months about the public health risks posed by in-person voting and has ignited a national debate over the security and efficacy of absentee and mail-in voting, right? That's what was happening. That's what prompted all of the lawsuits. Now, I said at the time, and I think it is pretty clear now, the purpose of all of these lawsuits was to essentially till the field in order for um, election litigation to occur after the votes were counted. After Election Day, no matter how you needed uh, the system to play out or whatever the results were, you would have a, a bunch of different opportunities available to you, right, to litigate. That was my view of these lawsuits. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. So the senators in the General Assembly, they call this uh, hearing and they bring in the election director and uh, her name is Karen Brinson Bell. Senator Paul Newton um, told the story at the beginning of his opening remarks. I had not heard this before, and that's not to say it hasn't been reported or anything. I just had not heard this story. Um, but this, to me, is, this is outrageous. On September 22nd, nearly three weeks after voting began, the Board of Elections announced the secret settlement agreement had been reached with the Democratic Party's lawyer. The legislature didn't know about the agreement. In fact, legislative lawyers were supposed to participate in a deposition as part of the case on the morning the settlement was announced. When legislative lawyers arrived at the scheduled deposition location, a lawyer for, the, for Attorney General Josh Stein claimed he didn't know why nobody else had shown up. But Josh Stein and his office participated in the secret settlement. And just two hours, Two hours after claiming ignorance, that same lawyer filed a 28-page settlement agreement with his name on it on behalf of the Board of Elections. Not coincidentally, the secret settlement agreement achieved the policy goals that Director Brinson Bell had requested that the bipartisan supermajorities had rejected. In the words of multiple federal judges, the agreement eliminated the witness requirement for absentee ballots. It also extended the absentee ballot receipt deadline for three days from three days after Election Day to nine days. Both provisions changed state law after voting began. OK, I would submit that these details should not even be contested 
although Brinson Bell contests them. She says that the rule changes were rule changes and that rule changes are not law changes. So when the law says that you accept ballots three days past Election Day and then she, through the settlement agreement, they changed that to be nine days or add on nine days. They made it through November 12th instead. So they tacked on nine days. Um, Despite the fact that the law said three and the settlement agreement pushes it to nine, um, then that's a that's a rule change, not a law change. And I just disagree. And by the way, as I said, the very things that she had sought the General Assembly to change are the very things that the settlement agreement did. And I'm sure that's just coincidence, right? As I said, I believe that the lawsuits were filed, hundreds of lawsuits filed all across America in mainly swing states and Republican states uh, because they were trying to till the field to make it fertile for post-election litigation. They didn't need to do it because, you know, they won, but they were there. They had set the they had set the framework, you know, they tilled the field. Speaking of tilling the field, if you are thinking about getting a tiller, renting one, you don't need to buy one. Just rent one from General Equipment Rental and then you till your garden beds and stuff uh, and then you give it back. It's a fantastic idea, right? You don't need the tiller. Who uses a tiller like more than once a year? Okay. All right. Look, all right. Maybe if you're tilling a lot, then you should go buy one. But most people, most homeowners are not going to be in the business of tilling stuff all year long. So uh, it's just one example of the kind of equipment that General Equipment Rental has uh, and that they will rent to you. And they'll show you how to use it, too, by the way. So you will have confidence that you're going to go and you're going to get the job done. It's going to uh, it's going to go way smoother, way easier uh, when you know what you're doing and you have the tool, the right tool for the job. It makes a huge difference. So head on over to General Equipment Rental. Uh, Spring is here. If you're looking to replace some equipment, you know, power mowers, you've got, um, oh, they got a great deal right now on a Husqvarna stand-on mower. Um, The V500 series, you can actually score up to $3,500 on the V548 or V554. Uh, That is a massive deal. They actually combine two deals. And that's one of the things that they know to do because they're specialists for Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment because they're the official licensed dealer and uh, service provider for Husqvarna and Honda. And so they know of these special deals that come along. So if you're looking uh, looking to get a... Uh, some new you know, equipment for the springtime to help tame the vegetation that is attempting to take over your property, go to General Equipment Rental there in Weaverville on Merriman Avenue at Reams Creek Road, family-owned and operated for three generations. Go to their website, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. All right, so Senator Warren Daniel then begins the questioning of Karen Brinson-Bell, the elections director, and he asks her, do you think that the average Democratic Party voter would have more trust or less trust if the elections process, if the vote counting process were controlled by Republicans. We saw uh, unprecedented turnout by all political affiliations. 81% of Republicans turned out in this election, so they had trust in a Democratic controlled uh, board of elections. And 75% of Democrats turned out. We have had varying Democrat or party control of our board of elections, and this year we saw the highest turnout ever. All right, so you hear her argument there, which is the reason why the Republican turnout was so high is because they had confidence in the system. <laughs> okay, just yeah, just sit with that one for a minute. Like, ma'am, do you know a Republican? <laughs> 
do you <laughs> do you speak to Republicans in the course of your daily life? Okay. So, do you feel that they would have more or less trust in an electoral process if vote counting were controlled by the opposite party? I don't analyze that. I work on behalf of all North Carolinians and all voters. And I know she has to say that, but the obvious answer is, of course, of course, the the Democrats don't trust the Republicans to administer elections fairly and vice versa. Of course, that's the case. Do you think it improves trust or harms trust when the rules of an election are changed after voting begins? Harms it. it har- I know the answer to that one. It harms it. The to what you speak, I believe the rules were not changed. <laughs> Uh, Or I should say the rules were changed, but the laws were not changed. This is the line that her lawyers prepped her on. The rules were changed, but the laws were not. She says it repeatedly throughout this two hours of testimony. And ultimately, we were able to count um, 5.5 million votes. About 8,000 were resolved through the cure process. And about 2,000 were addressed during the extended uh, seven days um, for properly postmarked ballots. So as you um, concede, the rules were changed after the election had begun. Do you think that that improves trust or harms trust when rules are changed after an election begins? Given the calls that we were receiving and the fear that people had and whether they could safely cast their ballot in person or if the mail would actually deliver their ballot because we had received word from the U.S. Postmaster General that they could not uh, assure delivery of a a ballot within a week, um, that's where their fear was. They had uh, difficulty trusting the U.S. Postal Service. Not and, and why was that, by the way? Why was that? Why did people not trust the Postal Service to deliver the mail in a timely fashion? Well, first off, the Postal Service said, hey, we haven't been delivering mail in a timely fashion like this for a long time, right? We're, like, we're, our 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 delay is, you know, days, not, you know, not like one or two. It's like a week, right? So it's going to take a while. And so your old rules, election people, your old rules about how, you know, you're relying on us to administer your election. Like you may want to be, you may want to update people on that. And then that got turned into Donald Trump and his postmaster general DeJoy, um, that they are trying to prevent people from voting. And this got whipped up to such a frenzy. Remember, there were pictures of mailboxes on a truck. They're like, they're taking up mailboxes. And they're like, decommissioning machines and sorting machines and all this stuff, right? It got turned, you know, up the up to, you know, level 11 out of 10 on the dial of outrage here. You had elected officials, Democratic elected officials who were telling people, don't vote by mail, go drop them off in person. And this becomes important because Karen Brinson Bell then cites that as the reason why the settlement agreement was needed. They're election officials. So is what is it fair to say that what you're saying is it improves the trust of the voters when the rules are changed after voting has begun? <laughs> <laughs> the rules needed to be addressed because of the pandemic. A five-member bipartisan board unanimously chose to take action on three matters when the plaintiffs were seeking considerably more actions, including the removal of the witness altogether, prepaid postage, the elimination of um, the witness requirement. Uh, it's, it's, it's more involved than that. And so what they were working to do 
is to ensure the least amount of changes in the rules because we had indication from across this country that the courts were intervening and they were making more substantial changes than what the state board in a unanimous fashion chose to do. All right, so a uh, couple things there. You're going to look at all of the other uh, court actions around the country, which, by the way, a lot of these judges that they were going before were Democrat judges. So Democrats suing Democrats, going for Democrat judges. And look at that. They all agree on what should happen <laughs> on a remedy. Isn't that amazing? She also keeps talking about the you know bipartisan, unanimous decision by the Board of Elections. And she always omits the fact that two uh, of the members, the two Republicans, uh, resigned their positions two days after the announcement of the settlement agreement, and they claimed that they were misled about what was in the agreement by the attorney that was negotiating the settlement. The attorney is a guy by the name of Swain Wood. This guy works for Josh Stein, the attorney general, who, by the way, was on the ballot. Josh Stein is a Democrat, and Swain Wood is a political appointment. He's not exactly, you know, a civil servant litigator. This was the guy who was apparently in charge of the negotiations and who brought the settlement terms to the Board of Elections. Do you think voters would have more trust or less trust in the electoral process if elections administration were fully bipartisan as opposed to controlled by one political party as it is now? I think the trust that the voters have is because the Boards of Elections staff, administrators, the staff of the State Board of Elections, we are public servants. <laughs> and whether it's a bipartisan board, by party affiliation, no matter that makeup, everyone hangs their nonpart hangs their hat at the door and we approach elections in a nonpartisan fashion. Okay, yeah. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. This woman is living either in a fantasy world or she's lying. The idea that, oh, everybody assumes that we're all working for, you know, nonpartisan outcomes, bull. That's garbage. And I think she knows it's garbage. And I think that's why she scrubbed her Twitter account, too. By the way, yeah, that comes up, too. Karen Brinson Bell scrubbed her Twitter account. And she doesn't want to say the word scrubbed, just like she didn't want to say the word changed right there. It's like whenever the Republicans, you know, when they try to frame something a certain way, they're like, so would you say that the rules were changed? Well, no, they were adapted. Right. She doesn't ever want to like give them any kind of acknowledgement of the way they frame something, even though she says throughout her testimony here that the rules were changed. But when the Republican says, so would you say that a rule change is good for building trust? Then she's like, well, not really a rule change. I don't want to acknowledge that what you said was correct. <laughs> so, like, of course, the answer here is obvious as well. Of course, it doesn't build trust. Of course, it undermines public confidence in the election when you're changing the rules in the middle of an election. Of course, it's detrimental. This is why the courts don't do it, generally speaking. This is why courts have historically not tried to mess with election rules too close to the election day, especially if voting is already underway, which is really what made these rulings last year so outrageous and egregious because they were violating their own precedent and norms. All right, next, Senator Daniel then asks about uh, how she learned about this position that she now has becoming available. Um, I actually worked for the State Board of Elections from 2006 until 2011, and then I was a county elections director from 2011 until 2015, and then I worked as an election consultant talking about the election practices that North Carolina had in place with the former state elections director. 
So who specifically contacted you about the, the position? Uh, my recollection is the first conversation was with the previous state elections director who was asked to, of individuals that he thought were of caliber and experience to lead the State Board of Elections. And do you recall what his name was? That gentleman is Gary Bartlett. Who- in, like you notice like her reluctance to name him. <laughs> it's like Voldemort. Like why wouldn't you give his name? Why wouldn't you say, yeah, it was Gary Bartlett served for 20 years as the state elections who director served for in North 20 Carolina. years right we know you, i know who gary bartlett is why would she why would she dance around his name on two separate answers like that consider yourself a political person or do you consider yourself to be nonpartisan? i am absolutely nonpartisan. Absolutely. in my role as an elections administrator i cast my ballot as a citizen uh, like any other individual when I go into the ballot box or ballot booth or voting booth rather, sorry. Um, but in terms of how I administer elections, you will find that I am a nonpartisan individual. Mm. I represented uh, Transylvania County as their elections director, which is made up of one third unaffiliated. Actually, more unaffiliated than Democrats or Republicans, but it's pretty much one third, one third, one third. And the, the commissioners were Uh, all Republicans, Um, and I worked with a board at one point that was made up of two Democrats and one Republican, and then at one point, two Republicans and one Democrat. So I think my uh, performance stands as an election administrator as being nonpartisan. Okay, Senator Daniel uh, then asked her about her Twitter account. Do you currently have a Twitter account? No, sir, I do not. Did you delete your Twitter account? Uh, I have deactivated social media because I don't think that that's my role as an individual. I am aware that I represent the State Board of Elections and we have our own Twitter and social media accounts. When did you delete the account? I did not delete it, I deactivated. um, And I have not used that since May of 2019, I believe is the date. I find this interesting that she's trying to make this distinction about deletion or deactivation. I'm not clear why she thinks this is important, except she's, you know, she's being contrarian to everything that the Republicans submit when they say, oh, did you change the rules? I would say I changed the rules, even though I just said I changed the rules, not the law. It's like, "Ah, I changed the rules, not the law. But don't say I changed the rules Then I'm going to say I adapted them. Right. Or we had to respond to, you know, the situation on the ground. And just like here, he says, oh, you deleted the account. No, I deactivated it. Okay, but for all intents and purposes, it's the same thing. Somebody who goes to find your Twitter account, they're not going to see it. It's been deleted from the public square. You say it was deactivated, which means what? That it's still sitting someplace that allows you to reactivate it when you are done with this gig? Is that the idea? So if you don't view yourself as a political person, will you share with this committee all of the tweets that were deleted or deactivated before your selection was publicly announced? Um, I don't know that I I would have to consider whether that's something that I should do in my capacity. Um, I will say that most of my tweets were about ranked choice voting, which has been supported by uh, Republicans and Democrats across this country, including my work with the Utah uh, state legislature. Yeah. So were your tweets political in nature then? I do not. Uh, only to the effect of I recall them being about ranked choice voting, no. which I do not deem political. Not true. No, she's no. That's a lie right there, because I've seen her Twitter account. See, she was one of the people who pushed the story to CNN 
about a uh, a local uh, director of um, of a charity that did a lot of work, and I worked with this charity as well. Uh, the guy's name was uh, Bill Murdoch, and uh, there was an accusation from. 25 years ago or something that he had an inappropriate relationship with a student he was a teacher at the time and um and that this this story apparently got buried and he had a you know he had some really bs kind of cover story well karen brinson bell apparently worked for a time for this charity and she during the you know me too uh uh movement or moment i should say she apparently was one of the sources and quoted named in the piece um for the cnn story uh that was written by like a freelance journalist or something that was published only at cnn.com and i only mention that because when i was doing the research on the story and and looking at the people involved because i knew some of the people involved i mean i one of i mean the accuser of this guy was a fan of my show and listened to my show and so I was talking with her and the guy was, you know, he had done all this work with our radio stations for all of these charitable events, did a lot of good. And so I knew the people involved. And so I was talking with them. But when I saw the story and I start looking into these people, I start doing some research. And the first thing you do is you go to their social media profile. And I went to Karen Brinson Bells and she was an anti-Trumper. And there's there's actually a couple of photos that survived the uh, in the the Wayback Machine because she when she took the job apparently she then shut it all down deactivated not deleted right she shut it all down and when she did somebody went back and was able to get uh, two posts of hers and I've seen them but I I saw stuff before I mean she was anti Trump she's a Democrat okay like fine. But here's the thing. She can't even acknowledge that she was a partisan Democrat, because if she does that, if she says this, then it might um, it might tarnish her you know, reputation here as a completely above board, nonpartisan administrator of the elections. And also, as our friend A.P. Dillon at the North State Journal explains, uh, some of her predecessors got into some trouble about things that they had uh, tweeted. Andy Penry resigned in 2018 over partisan political tweets, many of which bashed former President Donald Trump and disparaged Republicans. Andy Penry um, was then uh, replaced by Bob Cordell. He had to resign uh, due to an inappropriate joke that he told in front of hundreds of campaign-related workers comparing women to cows. Yeah, good one. Bob Cordell. Uh, and so then came Karen Brinson Bell. She got named uh, after Penry. That's when she got in. And remember, Bob Cordell got the job, then Andy Penry, then Karen Brinson Bell. These were all uh, all appointees of Roy Cooper because Roy Cooper fired Kim Strack. Or sorry, the Board of Elections fired Kim Strack, who was like a career Board of Elections investigator. She worked for the BOE for decades. And Democrats did not like her because of who her husband is, who's a lawyer, represents Republicans, uh, like Republican lawmakers in a couple different cases. But also she was an investigator and helped to take down uh, some, uh, you know, some bad actors, let's say some politicians. She was the lead investigator uh, on like the Mike, e former Governor Mike Easley's uh, uh, election related uh, problems. So they don't like her. They never did. And so and when Pat McCrory put her in charge of the Board of Elections, Democrats were not happy. And so when Cooper took over, he had the board fire her. And then they 
put in place Bob Cordell. He makes his joke. He gets uh, uh, he, he resigns. Then Andy Penry, he gets the gig. And then he tweets some stuff. They find tweets about how, you know, he hates all Republicans. So then he's out. And now Karen Brinson Bell gets in. But she makes sure to delete her entire Twitter profile. So they're asking about her tweets. And this obviously flustered her. So are you saying you will or won't release your tweets to the committee? I don't know why it's relevant. <laughs> so you would prefer they remain secret? Yes. I would prefer just, I, I don't, I don't have, I'm not going to, I think I would need to research that before it's appropriate for me uh, to release tweets from an account that I no longer have. Well, wait, whoa, 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 you no longer have. To release tweets from an account you no longer have, who has it? You said you deactivated it, which means you can reactivate it. Or did you delete it? You said you didn't delete it. You were very clear. You were like, I didn't delete it. I deactivated it. Remember, she just corrected him. So now she's saying, I don't have access to the account. You do have access to the account because you deactivated it, not deleted it. It's obvious her lawyers did not prep her on this line of questioning. She And she says as much, right? She says, oh, I wasn't prepared for these kinds of questions. I don't think this is relevant. Like, with all due respect, I don't care if you think it's relevant. I don't. I, I don't care if you think it's relevant. You should answer the questions. These are very simple questions. Warren, uh, uh, Senator Warren Daniel says you would prefer that they remain secret. The answer there is yes, you would. You obviously would, because if you didn't, you would not have deleted them. Sorry, deactivated the account, right? You never would have taken that step in the first place. Now, um... The step you need to take if you want a better night's sleep is to go to Mattress Man. Get yourself a mattress. If spring cleaning is on your to-do list, and part of that list includes tossing out your old mattress, then get to Mattress Man because uh, this is the, the, they're always thinking. They're like, hey, if you're going to upgrade or you know get a bigger mattress or a smaller one, whatever, uh, you're going to need some sheets. And so they'll take care of that for you. For real, a complete bedding set for free with select mattresses or a free anchor-weighted blanket. These are pretty cool. Christy got one for Christmas. Uh, she sleeps under it every night. And uh, they're designed to reduce anxiety. They're like, they're heavy. Like hers is like a 20-pound blanket. It's kind of nuts. Um, but it simulates a hug. And in these uncertain times, couldn't we all use a hug? They're pretty cool. You can get one free with the purchase of select mattresses or a complete bedding set at Mattress Man, the exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection made by Restonic right here in North Carolina. These are the beds in the hotel and in the inn at the Biltmore Estate. Uh, they got four stores in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They have uh, local five-star delivery service. They ship nationwide. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee. So uh, go to Mattress Man. Let the sleep consultants help you pick the right mattress for you and take advantage of all of their flexible financing options, uh, like no interest for two years. They've got a tax refund deal going on. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. Senator Daniels' line of questioning here is instructive because what became very clear is that she was seriously prepped on how to answer questions, and as soon as they went into some territory that she was not prepped for, she was unable to um, to put a matter to bed, right, to rest. She was unable to get past a question without it looking like she was completely dodging. <laughs> she was not prepped for this line of inquiry, and it showed. So how would you explain to the committee, um, should they take your 
claim to be impartial seriously if you simultaneously refuse to produce dozens or hundreds of past statements that you've scrubbed from the internet? I don't believe I indicated I scrubbed anything, but... Oh, uh, so I didn't scrub anything. So, like, again, she's, like, nitpicking over the word choice. She doesn't... I don't want you saying this word to say that that's what I did. That's not the right word. I deactivated my account. Well, that's scrubbing it. When you scrub something in internet language, that's what you've done. You've taken something down, right? If if I put up a, a podcast onto my page and then someone's like, that podcast is terrible and I take it down and someone says, oh, Pete scrubbed the podcast. I'm not going to be like, oh, I didn't scrub it. I just de I deactivated it. That would be just silly. Why would you fight over this kind of terminology? Um, I don't see how that's relevant. My performance as an election administrator from 2000 since 2006 and as i understood from the beginning this is not about me personally so why would my personal social media accounts be of concern well they might be if you're claiming that you're nonpartisan absolutely nonpartisan in the way you do your job i think maybe some people might beg to differ cuz i know what was on your twitter account so if it's not scrubbed, it's not deleted, merely deactivated, why not give the committee access to the tweets and let people see if you really are the kind of nonpartisan person you claim to be? That's all. Uh, this line of questioning was taken up later by Senator Chuck Edwards, um, who said, you know, you may not think your tweets are relevant, but a lot of other people do. So given the fact that so many other people believe that uh, the social media messaging of you maybe a year before your appointment would be relevant, would you be willing to release those, those tweets? Again, I don't want to, I was asked to come today to speak about the conduct of the 2020 general election. I did not come today to prepare, prepared to talk about an old uh, Twitter account. So I don't think that it's something that should be addressed at this time. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. I, I would beg that uh, this committee and lots of folks would believe that there's some relevance to that. And mm -hmm. so I, I believe that I hear you answering no. Is that is that correct? You would not release those. I came today asked to speak about or answer questions about the 2020 general election. I'm not trying to be evasive. Yeah, but you are. This was not something that has been brought to my attention, uh, nor has the State Board of Elections that I work for uh, asked or um, me to produce such a thing. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll take that as a no. You did mention that you needed to research before you release those tweets. Can you tell us the criteria that you would use in your research, uh, whether or not you would release those? <laughs> <laughs> Please, in, in all due respect, this was not a line of questioning I was expecting. I Uncle. Okay, under, understood. Thank in the, you. In Uncle. The interest of time, we'll, we'll Mercy. Enough. I can't take it anymore. That's what she's saying. She, she's calling Uncle. Crying Uncle, right? She gave up. She is being evasive. She's lying. I'm not trying to be evasive. Yes, you are. Because the answer is simply, I'm not giving you the tweets. They're not relevant. I don't believe they're relevant. So no, I'm, I'm not going to turn them over to you. That's it. I deactivated my account. 
and I haven't been on the account. I don't look at it. I don't use it or whatever. So I'm not going to give it. And by the way, my lawyer didn't prep me for any of this. So I'm just going to say no. Like that's the answer you would give. But she's so afraid of getting caught somehow in something. She doesn't know what they're going to spring on her. <laughs> it just does. They want to know, is she actually a nonpartisan actor? And this is important because we were told that she was the one that negotiated the settlement back in where is it here? September. Uh, do, do, do I have it here? Hang on. It's a large stack of stuff. Here we go. This is from September 24th, 2020. Last week, the North Carolina Board of Elections spent several hours in a private meeting that was closed to the public discussing eight different lawsuits over the elections, then later voted to let North Carolina Elections Director Karen Brinson Bell negotiate settlements. Tuesday's settlement was the first of those eight cases to be resolved. So it says here the board voted to let her negotiate the settlements. Did that mean that the News and Observer got it wrong or did that mean that she negotiated the settlement? They directed that and for me to to begin the uh, drafting guidance to the county boards. But uh, I think we're all aware that negotiations happen between attorneys and I'm not an attorney. So are you oh. suggesting that the, the lawyer for the AG never consulted his client, the state board, about settling the case? Uh, clearly, and we released the closed session minutes so that everyone's aware of what transpired. The State Board of Elections met for three hours in closed session, which is not uncommon. Uh, that is how you deal with settlement. You would not uh, do that out in an open meeting. Right. Um, so that is a matter that is approved for closed session. The state board members had also been given guidance from counsel within our agency as well as the litigation attorneys from the AG's office. Um, and so, yes, there were three hours worth. Um, and at the end of that three hours, after considering eight different lawsuits and multiple uh, requests from plaintiffs that included prepaid postage, the elimination of the witness altogether, the extension of early voting by 21 days. Um, I can go on with that list. They came to three items that they wanted to proceed with. They authorized me to uh, begin that guidance and for those to be the only three matters that they were willing to settle uh, that could be taken back to the plaintiffs. So just to clarify, so you're saying that the Attorney General, his litigators came up with the, they, they developed the settlement agreement absent input from the board. Is that what you're saying? The board was very clear in what they were agreeing to for settlement, and then the documentation had to be written not, not what he's asking. Uh, by the attorneys. That's not what he's he's trying. See, what's what they're trying to figure out and what she is evading. OK, and this is this does not inspire confidence is who was actually at the table. Who was at the table saying, this is what we will agree to, this is what we won't agree to, and then you take that language back to the board, right? Because there is a negotiation going on over what the board may or may not be willing to agree to. And the News and Observer, citing, I would believe, to be minutes from the closed session, uh, minutes from the vote, they say, the News and Observer says, that she was empowered to negotiate the settlements. But now she's saying she didn't. That that was up to the Attorney General's office. Their litigators did it. Who did the negotiations with Mark Elias? Who was at that table? 
And what it sounds like is a fellow by the name of Swain Wood. That's what it sounds like. Now, uh, this sounds like a great opportunity for you to learn more about Old Grouch's military surplus. Please go check them out. Their website is oldgrouch.com, or better yet, go on into his store on Main Street in downtown Clyde, Old Grouch's military surplus um, for more than 30 years. They've been providing you with access to real U.S. military surplus. And uh, in case you are unaware, there are military surplus outfits that are out there that uh, they don't exactly traffic in high quality U.S. made stuff. Okay, so go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and uh, he's open Monday through Saturday and, of course, online at oldgrouch.com. Now, maybe you're like, oh, my gosh, Pete, I can't get down there. I don't live uh, near Clyde. Well, the answer then is to, um, well, sell your house and go move to Clyde so you can be near Old Grouch's Military Surplus. And so if that's the case and you need to move, then you need Rowena Patton to sell your house. Yeah, that's true. Rowena Patton will get your house sold quickly and for more money. This is what she does. She's been doing it for years, and she outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state. She and her all-star powerhouse team will get your home sold quickly and for more money. Uh, If you are looking to buy, they've got homes in all price points. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. Her uh, phone number is 333-4483. Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 828-333-4483. Give her a call and then start packing. All right, back to Karen Brinson Bell's testimony and the uh, the questioning here is coming from Senator Warren Daniel. In any of those three hours of deliberations, did the AG's office or was the board aware that the North Carolina General Assembly was being, who was a party to the case, was being kept in the dark as to the settlement? Was that part of your three-hour discussion? The three hours centered on the fact that the state law gives the State Board of Elections the authority to settle a lawsuit, and then that is to be taken before the court for approval. Uh, there is not, you know, that, that's what they did. Um, I don't recall whether they were specifically told. I'd have to look back at the uh, minutes myself. So when were you, when did you as the director personally realize that the General Assembly was being kept in the dark about the settlement? (laughs) I was not aware whether they were being kept in the dark or not, and it did not, that wasn't my concern. I work on behalf of the State Board of Elections. Not my concern, she says. And also, that wasn't the question. He asked, when did you become aware? And she says, Oh, I don't know when I was aware. Well, at some point you did become aware, right? Or is this like brand new information like this very moment? No, at some point you became aware. What was that point? She doesn't say. She just says it wasn't my concern. And the attorneys that were representing us, there were other attorneys that went before the board, or excuse me, before the judge and briefed, uh, gave him briefings and argued before him for hours along with uh, attorneys from the Trump campaign and attorneys from the Republican National Committee. Well, with regard to the settlement, you don't deny that the General Assembly lawyers weren't aware of the settlement and found out about it when it was submitted to the court? Um, the State Board of Elections does not have authority to settle for legislative leaders. They have authority to settle on behalf of the State Board of Elections. So at what point in time prior to this date, prior to today, when did you learn that the General Assembly was not consulted in the settlement? I don't recall. I, it, that's not, that was not a point for me to be concerned about. I was administering an election uh, at the time when we were having 
hundreds of thousands of absentee ballot requests, uh, hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots being returned. Mm -hmm. We had our lobbies in our county boards of elections, which are about the size of some of your legislative offices, uh, filled with hundreds of people. Henderson County had 700 people in their lobby trying to return an absentee ballot one day because they feared that the Postal Service could not uh, return their ballot. And, and why was that? Why was that? Blue Anon. This is this is why it's not believable, right? This It's not believable that it never crossed anybody's mind, hers included, that, hey, you know what? The General Assembly is not privy to this. You're telling me that you're redoing election law, the very things that you went to the General Assembly and said, hey, I would very much like these things changed for this election because of the pandemic and the General Assembly in a bipartisan supermajority vote said, no, we're not going to do those things. And then you actually end up settling a lawsuit to get the very things you asked for but got denied. And you want everybody to believe that you were not aware that the very people you sought permission from at the very beginning of this, that they weren't included in the settlement agreement and that you're not changing any laws, you're just changing rules. And why are all those people, why are they storming the uh, uh, the election offices trying to drop off their ballots? Why is that happening? It's happening because Democrats said you can't trust the Postal uh, Service. Right. You can't trust them to deliver the mail on time. And why did they say that? Because the Postal Service said, hey, you guys are telling everybody they can vote up until Election Day. We're just letting you know our service is pretty terrible. We're not going to be able to ensure that all these ballots arrive within your whatever window, state to state to state. So you may want to tell people vote early. And instead of going out with that messaging, instead of saying, hey, everybody, make sure you vote no later than, you know, October 20th or something. Instead of doing that, they're like, we need to go do an end run around the state legislature and agree with the plaintiffs who just happen to represent our political colleagues. Oh, and by the way, there's nothing suspicious about any of this. So shut up. <laughs> this is what we were told. And you think that inspires confidence? Oh, well, don't ask Karen Brinson-Bell that because she can't answer whether or not a system would have more or less confidence <laughs> if it's changed midstream. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a positive review if you can. The Pete Show dot com. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>